1: Getting eight hours of sleep every night? Check. Eat a quality, plant-based diet? Check. Exercise four or more times a week? Check. Basically, you're doing everything right to ensure that you lead a long life. So isn't it time that you were financially rewarded for your commitment to a healthy lifestyle? Q Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates for people like you on their life insurance. To see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com slash naked scientist to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared with other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash naked scientist to let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthily. That's healthiq.com slash naked scientists. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientist. That's with me, Chris Smith, and also with Kat Arney. Hello, Kat. Hello. Now coming up this week: skincare by jellyfish. Yum yum. Japanese scientists have found the key to silkier skin and better cosmetics, and the source is a jellyfish. Wonderful. It's also official: men talk as much as women do, and scientists have also found a gene this week that causes asthma. That's all on the way. But also get this: researchers have found a part of the brain which, if you stimulate it, triggers out-of-body experiences.
0: We have induced the very striking experience that there is a person behind you. This feeling is so convincing that you have to turn around.
2: That is so spooky. You can hear the full interview coming up later. I cannot wait to hear that. Anyway, on the subject of the brain this week, we are exploring the basis of how the brain works and how it sometimes can go wrong. We'll also be finding out why we yawn and why yawning's infectious. I want to yawn right now. I hope people aren't starting off the show by yawning. Also, we have in the studio Howard Ring from Cambridge University. He's discussing his work on epilepsy. And also we have Nick Craddock from Cardiff University who's going to tell us about bipolar disorder which is also known as manic depression. And completely unrelated in kitchen science, uh, unless you count the nuts, I suppose, we'll be showing you a really funky experiment to do with your breakfast cereal. Yep,
1: all you're going to need is a tall glass or a bowl, a ball or something like it, and some rice. And we'll be joining Ben and Dave in just a second, live, to do it very shortly. So if you can solve the science behind it, then I'll give you a copy of my book, Naked Science, and I'll even sign it for you so you can flog it on eBay, and then it'll be worth about threepence instead of one-pence. Anyway, also uh, this week we're running our Weekly teaser as usual. Up for grabs, we've got a very fab book this week. It's by Barry Gibb. It's just out. It's been published by Penguin and it's called The Rough Guide to the Brain. It's all about, surprise, surprise, how the nervous system works. And to win it, can you tell us how much on average does the human brain weigh?
2: Obviously, mine weighs loads and loads more. But it's amazing anyway. how
1: much empty space can weigh, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> the Naked Scientist Podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting
3: provider, on the web at ukfast.net.
1: Now, Kat, I can tell by your youthful appearance that you must spend a lot of money on skincare. Oh,
2: you? yes. Yes. Cowpats <laughs> on every night, bathing in milk.
1: Cowpats? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does as good as it? Yeah. Well, it turns out that there's a very important ingredient in cosmetics and that's this protein called mucin. It's the same stuff that your eyes make that makes your eyes very smooth and slimy so your eyeballs can move around without resistance. And also so you can swallow food, it lines the stomach and cells lining the mouth and the uh, esophagus and the stomach and the intestines ooze out this mucin because it makes things slimy. It's also very good at binding moisture. So it's an important ingredient in skincare products and cosmetics. What? because it makes uh. them smooth and silky. The way we get it at the moment for making makeup and things like that is from the stomachs of pigs. You can extract it from pig stomach. And also cow salivary glands. I'm not putting cow spit on my face. We just said you put cow pats on well, there, so it not was, any difference. That but that was uh, it turns out that uh, jellyfish are a really, really rich source of this protein mucin. And it's a piece of research been done by someone called Ushida, who works over at the Institute of Physical and Chemical Research in, in Waco, Japan. And Japan's got a jellyfish problem at the moment and in recent years there's been a huge increase in the number of massive jellyfish that are turning up on the shores of Japan. We think because scientists, well scientists reckon it's because they've constructed some artificial reefs to push up the amount of seafood that's available because Japan thrives on seafood, marine produce. Also because of global warming, warmer waters mean these things move into the waters there and also because of overfishing because if you remove the fish then they don't eat the little jellyfish and the little ones turn into the big ones. So, what can we do with them? Well, you could potentially turn them into makeup because they've done research on five different species of these jellyfish and found they all contain large amounts of this mucin. So instead of having to chew up cows' salivary glands and pig stomachs, we could turn to jellyfish instead.
2: Slightly more acceptable to put dead jellyfish on your face than cow spit, possibly. You can eat
1: them. People, yeah. you, they're a delicacy actually. And someone a few years ago decided to make a jellyfish crisp. The equivalent of a bag of walkers, but uh, oh, jellyfish. she said. Yeah, apparently it tastes quite nice.
2: That's pretty cool, a bit fishy, I reckon. Anyway, hot off the press, the, the embargo is just lifted on this story. But scientists funded by Cancer Research UK have found a common gene uh, that can increase the risk of bowel cancer. And this is actually the first time that scientists have found such a common gene. Now, we know that there are several gene faults that can increase the risk of bowel cancer, and there's genes called APC and HMPCC But these are very rare, and only around 1 in 2,500 people in the UK have them. Um, but around a third of all bowel cancers are thought to have some kind of genetic component, so there's obviously loads of genes we haven't found yet. And the researchers in total they've studied the genes of more than 30,000 people, around half of whom have had bowel cancer. And they've pinned down a faulty region of DNA uh, to part of chromosome 8. So this is one of our human chromosomes, it's called 8Q24. Now, at the moment, we don't know what the actual gene is, we just know that it's this region that's faulty. And they found that around half the population carry this particular genetic fault.
1: So why is bowel cancer not more common then?
2: Well, bowel cancer is pretty common. There's more than 30,000 cases every year in the UK. But this gene fault, although it's commonly spread throughout the population, it only increases your risk by about 20%. So it's taking your risk over a lifetime from about 1 in 20 to around 1 in 16.
1: Okay, so it's, it sort of increases the chance. It loads yeah. the dice. Yeah,
2: it's it's... The, the the genes that we know of like APC they really increase your risk a lot whereas this is just a small increase in risk but it's very widespread in the population so at the moment it's not possible to really genetically test for this because the risk is so small but as research progresses they're looking for loads and loads more of these low risk genes that then you could maybe think of screening someone for a whole panel of them and you could work out yeah, more accurately what someone's t- Together they'd all
1: add up to a much bigger risk.
2: Exactly. We're well,
1: talking of genes there's another really exciting study which has come out of Imperial College down in London this week. Bill Cookson and his colleagues have found a gene for asthma and they did it in a really clever way they got a thousand children with asthma and a thousand children who didn't have asthma and they looked at every single gene in every single one of them and they used something called a single nucleotide polymorphism or SNP which are just flags, they mark up DNA hotspots That's how they did
2: this bowel cancer study What they found
1: was that they they were able to home in on this region of chromosome 17 in these asthmatics which was always changed in 30% of them and not in the ones that didn't have asthma. So they've called it orm dl 3 Unfortunately, Catchy. there the, the, train goes, the trail goes a little bit cold at that point because they don't know what this gene does yet, but it's something very important to how the immune system works. So what the think is that this is a risk factor for asthma. It could help us to therefore open up new avenues of working out what causes asthma and maybe new ways to treat it because once you've got a gene, you can work out what it does, and then once you know what it does, you can work out how to change what it does so you don't get asthma. We've
2: seen loads of these you know, whole genome studies coming out Recently, they finally got the technique, the technology, right down, and we've had some coming out for for breast cancer, this one for bowel cancer, asthma, and all sorts of other diseases as well. And um, and later, we've got um, people coming up talking about bipolar disorder, and they found genes for those in similar kind of studies. So do stay tuned. Um, speaking about the immune system, um, researchers around the world are starting to realise that cancer is actually quite closely linked to inflammation and in our immune system, and um, much closer linked than we previously thought. And this week, researchers at the University of Cambridge Cambridge have found a link between the immune system and breast cancer and they found that molecules called cytokines which play a key part in our immune response to infection are also involved in producing milk in your breast during pregnancy and so they think that this actually has implications for understanding breast cancer because the cells that are responding to cytokine signaling if they respond wrong they might start gr- growing out of control and turn into a cancer um, it doesn't really fit with what we know about you know, having babies and breastfeeding can actually reduce your risk. protective, isn't it? Yeah, that yeah. can reduce your risk of cancer.
1: But it's also but it's- associated with very high levels of the same hormones.
2: Exactly, so it's, it's kind of clouding the picture a bit, but it's, it's adding to our knowledge, and certainly adding to our knowledge about the immune system.
1: Well, a little bit of a I suppose a funnier story, which is that there's a researcher who's at Duke University in North Carolina, uh, Elizabeth Derryberry, how's that for a name? And she's been looking at birds and their taste in music. And I actually gave this a headline because I couldn't resist the pun, which is greatest tits, uh, (laughs) because they're kind of bird, aren't they, tits? Um, But it's also quite funny. But the, the reason that I wrote that is because what she did was got some recordings of sparrows from the 1970s when they were singing to each other, and she got some recordings from the same species, obviously different sparrows, from 2003. She was interested in trying to find out how birds evolve their songs over time because it's obvious that birds we know sing with regional accents in the same way as Phil Rosenberg, when he's on this programme, brings a uniquely northern flavour to the programme and sounds totally different from the rest of us. He's got a local accent. We get a lot of emails about accents on this programme. This study is looking at how birds develop accents. Now, what they found was that when you played... The songs of the birds from the 1970s to birds of today—they were not particularly interested. It was, in fact, the effect was a bit like playing the birdie song at a wedding. You know, it went down like a Led Zeppelin dance floor, empty. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, But when they played songs from the birds recorded in 2003, in their words, okay, the female birds invited far more copulations, and the male birds were much more aggressive. They were strutting around, oozing aggression, and kind of puffing out their feathers, looking very pleased with themselves. just like being territorial aggression. Yeah. Well, I suppose so, yeah. So what they're arguing is that in a very short space of time, birds change their songs when they digitally analysed the difference between the songs from the 70s and, and 2003. The, the 2003 version was a much lower pitch and also much slower the way the birds were singing it. So there are regional differences that evolve very quickly. They think this might trigger the evolution of new species of birds because this would lead to birds that had separated each other from each other geographically, adopting different songs. One, one group of birds wouldn't be interested in the songs from the others
2: yeah they probably think it's deeply uncool anyway, and finally uh we have the answer to the question that's always bugged us in the it's always said that women talk more than men
1: they now, do on this show cat no
2: ah. wait here at the naked scientist i think it's hard to get an edge a word in edgeways uh, from dr chris because you're always talking but anyway new research from the university of arizona has right
1: that's p- enough of that let's uh, carry on <laughs>
2: has suggested that men may be just as chatty as women and what the scientists did is they recorded the conversations of 400 Mexican male and female students over six years and logged their words and analysed them and they published their results in Science This Week, the journal and they revealed that women in the study okay, they spoke a daily average of 16,215 words not all of which were about chocolate or men uh, during the hours of daylight versus an average of 15,669 words for men. Yeah
1: but the men were probably having to say everything twice, weren't they, to it's, the women? It's
2: not a statistically significant <laughs> difference. But they, they did find that's on average, there's not much difference. But they found, for example, huge ranges in the number of words that people say. So, so, so it was
1: the most talkative person in the study male or female? The
2: most talkative person was male, and he said 47,000 words in one day, and the least talkative male said just about 500.
1: Can you imagine <laughs> only getting through a day on 500 words? I wonder how many we actually say on each edition of The Naked Scientist. We'd have to add it Ooh, up. Oh, loads,
2: loads and loads. Anyone out there want to count? You're very welcome too.
1: An exciting story. Thanks for that, Kat. Right. It is the Naked Scientists. We are going to try and cover 47,000 words this week because we're discussing the science of the brain. We're going to be talking about epilepsy. We're going to be talking about manic depression. We're going to be finding out about the basis of out-of-body experiences and also why we yawn and why yawning is contagious. You see someone doing it and you want to do it yourself. If you have any questions on any of those things then you can call in. Another reason to call in is to have a go at this week's teaser.
2: We want to know how much does the average Human brain way.
1: The Naked Scientists. Supported by the Wellcome Trust.
2: Now here on The Naked Scientist, it's time for kitchen science. So if you eat muesli for breakfast, I'm sure you're going to have noticed that the first few bowls from a new box of muesli are really nice. They've got, you know, big nuts and fruit in, really yummy. And the last, bo- <laughs> the last bowls out of the box are all kind of powdery and a bit horrible. So Ben and Dave have gone to Parkside Community College in Cambridge to actually find out why the raisins rise to the top. Hello, Ben.
4: Hello, welcome to Kitchen Science. We're at Parkside Community College in Cambridge today. I'm with Dave. Hi there. I'm with Emily. Hi. And I'm with Matt. Hello. And Dave told me today we're going to be finding out why it is that the raisins always come to the top of your muesli.
5: Well, muesli's got big lumps in it, sort of raisins, and you may have noticed they always end up at the top of the muesli, so you start your bag of muesli and you get really nice raisiny muesli, and by the time you get to the end it's all horrible with none of the nice sweet things in it.
4: I have noticed that, you're right.
5: So we're going to explain what's happened.
4: How are we doing this, Dave?
5: we're going to be building a model of some muesli. So raisins are big things, and the rest of muesli tends to be a lot smaller. So a good model is rice and some rubber balls, which are like the big raisins. Um, you also want a couple of pint glasses or large jars, and maybe a bit of carpeted floor to stop you breaking the glass.
4: And so what if people don't have those little bouncy balls? Well, you could just basically try, try the same experiment with some muesli. OK, then, Dave, so with rice, bouncy balls, pint glasses and the carpet, what's the first step?
5: First step is fill the two pint glasses about half full of rice. So Emily if you like to do that?
6: Both of them yeah. Yeah. So just tipping the rice to fill half two pint glasses. So we now have two pint glasses half full of rice.
5: So now I want you to both take a one of these bouncy balls and poke it into the jar of rice. Put it in about halfway down and make sure it's covered up.
4: There we go. Okay then. So now we have two pint glasses both half full of rice, and buried somewhere in there is a bouncy ball. This still doesn't look like breakfast cereal. Well, this is a bit like breakfast cereal. You've got big things and you've got small things. Now,
5: when you're transporting breakfast cereal around the country, it gets like moved around in trucks. It gets shaken around. So, what we're going to do is kind of simulate this shaking around. What Emily to do is take the glass and just shake it up and down in your hand. What Matt to do is to shake it by just hitting it against the
4: carpeted floor. So if you want to try this out at home, get yourself a couple of pint glasses, half-fill them with rice and put a little bouncy ball in there. Or if you don't have rice and bouncy balls in your house, then try it with some real muesli. And then shake one of them just up and down, don't bang it into anything. Shake the other one by tapping it repeatedly on something like a carpet or on the floor on a kitchen work surface, as long as you're careful not to break the glass. And then call into the show, let us know what you think will happen, and we'll be back with you later on in the show.
2: Thanks, Ben. So if you want to have a go at this week's Kitchen Science, half fill a pint glass with rice, push a bouncy ball in it, watch what happens when you shake it or bang it on the surface.
1: Don't forget our teaser running this week, show's all about the brain, and we want to know how much on average does the human brain weigh. Now I've had an email here from Alison. Uh, She's listening actually from York it says here and she says hey Chris I love listening to the podcast I've started to spread the word and tell everybody including my biology teacher she was so happy with the experiments you've put on your website that's kitchen science at the Naked Scientist you just go to naked com forward slash kitchen science lots of experiments there uh, we did one in our lab it was the most fun I'd had in the lab for the longest time thank you very much once again cool now, Kat I've got uh, lots and lots of emails coming in. One here from John G, who says, "Thank you for your interesting show. Uh, some cream makers say that you should buy new stuff every year, as the previous year's cream loses its effectiveness." True or just a marketing scam to keep up sales?
2: This is actually true. Uh, Briefly, there's two types of sun cream. Some have chemicals in, some have um, zinc and things like that. And the ones with chemicals in, which are the most commonly available ones, they're the ones that kind of absorb into your skin and don't leave you all white and funny. Um, they, They can expire over time because of the actual protective effect of the chemicals means that they're quite unstable. So yes, you really should buy sun cream, new every year.
1: This one's kind of related. It's um, from Sue, who's in Bloomington. She says, hello, nakeds. I've discovered your show. I enjoy it greatly. Thank you very much. My question's somewhat creepy. Uh, this is related to others. Uh, I'm linking this together, Kat, so you'll see why. If a person is at the beach lying in the sun and then dies, will the body continue to become more tanned?
2: <laughs> uh, I suppose it depends how long they're there for. It will certainly change colour after some hours or days. Um, well, your your cells when you when you die, your cells don't immediately stop. Your metabolism kind of winds down. So because tanning is production of melanin in your skin um, probably for some time it will continue to be produced it's a bit like uh, that question
1: uh, do your fingernails and hair continue yeah. to grow after you die and in fact it's a myth because they do look slightly longer but the actual That's amount of growth is tiny shrinks, it's because everyone shrinks yeah. yeah and the nails look longer because the nail fold where they come from shrinks back and so the nail actually exposed is longer
2: i i reckon there'll be a small amount of metabolism uh going on anyway we've had a caller in who has just given blood and got a gold award for giving blood i gave blood this week i feel good and lighter um but he wants to know um that'll be all the iron um, is it possible that people out there who've had a blood transfusion could have his DNA in them? Chris what do you reckon?
1: Not anymore because we know that BSE could be spread by blood transfusions and people realised the risk a while back and so they started doing what's called leukodepleting all blood in this country so when you give blood they collect the red cells because we, we know they're safe and you use a special technique to remove the white blood cells and so it just leaves the red blood cells behind so the red blood cells don't have a nuclear in them the only animals that have nucleus material and hence dna are chickens and uh, other birds birds have nucleated red cells we don't no dna in our red cells therefore no dna in blood transfusions therefore your dna does not end up in someone uh, who receives a blood transfusion from you bone marrow transplant different matter
2: and finally a quick one for you this should get you um he's a podcast listener this is dave in san francisco and he has a question which needs some arbitrating. He's been arguing with his girlfriend. He says, "When I eat raw celery, my tongue goes numb, but my girlfriend doesn't believe me. I've looked on the internet and haven't seen any definitive answers about what causes this or if it really exists." Celery is
1: a perfect diet food, allegedly, isn't it? Because it's, well, it's horrible,
2: uh, con- so you don't want to eat it.
1: <laughs> well, I suppose so. That, that, that's true. Um, but also, it apparently contains so much fibre that you end up exerting more energy eating it than you actually derive through absorbing it but with this funny sort of prickly sensation in the mouth i reckon this could be a manifestation of what's called oral allergy syndrome and basically what it comes down to is if you have an allergy to a pollen so you have hay fever because plants which make pollen also you then go and eat those plants then because you're allergic to the pollen, there are some of the same things that you're allergic to in the pollen also in the plant. So when you eat the plant, your mouth gets exposed to the same things as you would react to in the pollen, so you have a miniature allergic reaction going on in the mouth. And the symptoms are prickliness, swelling, itchiness. Sometimes you have this annoying itchy sensation on the inside of your ears. It's almost like you want to reach into your mouth and scratch the insides of your ears. I wonder if that prickly numbness sensation in his tongue is celery, provoking this oral allergy, because... If he's allergic to birch pollen, celery's in the same family, and birch pollen cross-reacts with celery.
2: Yeah, I wonder, there might be chemicals called sorolins, which I think are in celery as well, so that might they, they can be irritant as well. Anyway, we, we've answered some of your questions. We do have a question here that we can't answer, so we're throwing it out to you guys, and it's from um, Karen, Thunder Bay in Canada. And she says, she's always wondered, why is it if you put pen or highlighter on a fax, over time the fax disappears? Has anyone ever seen this? Anyone have any ideas about it? I think it's something to do with chemistry to do with the inks. Because a fax paper
1: uh, fo- is sort of a thermal, thermal isn't, ink, it? isn't <laughs> it? And you press the ink on under high temperature and then it sort of bleaches out over time. But maybe there's some chemical reaction going Anyone who works for a fax making company or knows about fax paper, tell us, please. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientists.com. We're now on The Naked Scientist to a puzzle that science has never solved. It's something we all do, it's contagious, and even animals are affected. It is, of course, yawning. But why do we do it? Well, joining me now from the State University of New York at Albany is Gordon Gallup, who thinks he knows the answer. Hello, Gordon. Hi, Chris. Thank you for joining us on The Naked Scientists. So what have you done to try and work out what a yawn is, to start with?
6: Well, we think that yawning may have evolved to function as a as a brain-cooling mechanism. It turns out that a variety of drugs that inadvertently increase brain temperature, uh, such as uh, antidepressants, um, often produce excessive yawning.
1: When you say increase brain temperature, literally they make the brain hotter, but how?
6: That's correct. They raise brain temperature. Some of the uh, um, serotonin reuptake inhibitors that are used as antidepressants.
1: Is that because they make the brain more active? It burns more energy, so it...
6: I suspect that it it, it increases brain metabolism.
1: And a side effect of that increase in metabolism and and temperature seems to be more yawning amongst the sufferers.
6: It seems to be the case. Likewise, sleep deprivation increases brain temperature and excessive yawning is a common symptom of sleep deprivation.
1: So how did you try and tease out whether it's just the temperature or something else going on?
6: Well, we focused on two well-established brain-cooling mechanisms, and it involves what's called nasal breathing and forehead cooling. And when you breathe in cool air through your nose, it cools the blood and capillaries in your nasal epithelium and sends that cool air to the brain. Likewise, when you cool your forehead, there are emissary veins that are connected to your brain, and it cools your brain. So what we did was we had subjects either breathe through their nose, or hold cold packs to their forehead. And we discovered that under those conditions, yawning stopped.
1: How did you make them yawn?
6: We made them yawn by having them watch videotapes of other people who were yawning.
1: And so this was sort of contagious yawning?
6: Contagious yawning, exactly. And by cooling the brain, presumably it eliminates the need to yawn, and as a consequence you don't get contagious yawning under those conditions
1: so are there any other explanations apart from the temperature related idea
6: well a lot of people think that you yawn in order to uh, replenish oxygen levels in the blood but a lot of independent research has been done on that question and it turns out that if you manipulate both oxygen and co2 levels in a person's blood it leaves yawning unaffected
1: now when you say you got people to cool their brain via their forehead tell us a bit about that how did that
6: work Well, we had them either hold uh, warm packs to their forehead, cold packs to their forehead, or packs that were maintained at room temperature. And those that held cold packs to their forehead stopped yawning.
1: You don't think that's because it's actually quite unpleasant having something cold jammed onto your forehead, and, and this made the subjects more aroused and more alert, just because they were doing something which could be quite painful, in fact?
6: Well, they weren't so cold as to produce uh, painful after effects, uh, but the fact that nasal breathing produces the same effect tends to rule out any discomfort.
1: Well, let's look at the sort of group dynamic then. Why is it that if we're sitting in a, in a cluster together, um, I yawn, the person next to me might catch it and yawn, probably the whole audience to this programme are now yawning in sympathy with us talking about it and not just because they're bored. Uh, why should that happen? What's the evolutionary purpose? There must be one because animals do it, as I said at the beginning.
6: We think that contagious yawning evolved to maintain group vigilance, so as to enable people to be better at detecting danger. That is, when someone yawns, we take that as evidence for the fact that their brain temperature has increased and their mental efficiency has decreased. Therefore, if everybody yawns, the overall level of vigilance on the part of the group will be enhanced.
1: And so in that respect, you're more likely to spot that tiger lurking, which is going to pluck you off if you all fall asleep. Precisely. Okay well thank you very much to Gordon Gallup for joining us and explaining that Gordon thank you My pleasure
2: I'm certainly yawning now I hope no one else is yawning too You're much so at home.
1: rude
2: I I've perfected the art of yawning with my mouth shut it's very useful
1: Yes well uh, you know I'm sure your life is that if your life is a bit more interesting
2: Well yeah we'll then I wouldn't need to yawn all the time
1: yeah, you well, uh, my brain. Now, I've got to say hello to, uh, I was just talking to Tom Doig, who is actually at Barkway School in Hertfordshire. He says that people in his class, and some of them are eight and nine years old, he asked me to say hello to them, and they listen to the Naked Scientists, and they love doing our experiments. And to sort of remind you, this week's Kitchen Science, if you want to have a go at it, you need to get a big glass or something full of, well, half fill it with rice, put some kind of object, like a ball, something like a bouncy ball, into the centre of it, but, and then give it a really good shake around when you filled the glass up to the top with rice and tell us what happens. And you could win yourself a prize. I'm going to give away a copy of Naked Science. That's my book, and Woo-hoo. I'll sign it for you. Alan in Orpington uh, has written and said... Thank you for your answer all about um, blood transfusions just now. But in the 1960s, sometimes blood was taken and then then given directly to the recipient with no filtering or separation. Um, This is true. Uh, In the old days, we used to just match to see who had compatible blood and then give it to people because there was no major reaction. Um, What we now know is that there were various viruses that could be transmitted that way. So what people started to do actually was to kill off the white blood cells in the blood by zapping them with... X-rays and gamma ray-like things, so you can zap them with intense radiation. This blasts apart the DNA, but doesn't damage the rest of the cells, so they still work as cells. So that's actually what they did. Um, so you weren't still not giving DNA; otherwise, there would have been an, a reaction with the blood.
2: And now it's time to head over to the states to find out what Bob and Chelsea have for us in this week's science update.
7: This week, for the Naked Scientists, we're featuring two ways to help the healing process. I'm going to talk about how suction helps, but first, Chelsea's going to tell us about a technology that could be best described as a blood based bandage.
8: When you get a cut, blood molecules called platelets create clots and release healing chemicals. To help patients with healing disorders recover from surgery, doctors can actually concentrate a patient's platelets into a gel and apply it to the wounds. Recently, reconstructive surgeon David Hom, then at the University of Minnesota School of Medicine, decided to test the gel on surgical wounds he made in eight normal volunteers to see if it would help healthy people, too.
6: Whenever we had a greater than six-fold increase of platelet concentration, we saw that they closed uh, approximately, I'd say, 10 percent
8: quicker. That may not sound like much, but Ham notes that for patients recovering from major surgery, it could shave two or three days and thousands of dollars off a hospital stay.
7: Thanks, Chelsea. A vacuum cleaner-like device may make children's hospital stays easier. This according to pediatric surgeon Oleinka Olitoje of the Baylor College of Medicine. He and his colleagues studied children recovering from messy injuries and sores or complicated surgeries. They found that applying constant suction to a wound through a specialized airtight dressing not only promoted healing, but also reduced the need for painful and scary-looking bandage changes.
6: So many times the the wound or the dressing changes are actually very difficult situations for those children that they need to be medicated at times to keep them uh, calm and and maintain and, and reduce the pain.
7: The suction technique is already used in adults, but this study suggests that it's safe and effective for children and even newborns.
8: Thanks, Bob. Next time we'll be back with what we hope are some less bloody stories from our side of the pond. Until then, I'm Chelsea Wald.
7: And I'm Bob Hershon for AAAS, the Science Society. Back to you, Naked Scientists. Thank you, Bob and Chelsea, and you can find out more about what they get up to
1: on the web at scienceupdate.com.
2: Um, we've had a few answers in, in our teaser, which uh, we want to know, what's the average weight of the human brain? Um, Pat, uh, you're pretty much right. Yvonne in Whittlesey on the right lines. Andrew in Saffron Walden. Um, L Hurst, I think. Um, I don't know how big your brain is, but you're way over there. But now talking about the brain, we're joined in the studio by Dr Howard Ring, who's from the University of Cambridge. Hi, Howard. Hello. And um, most people are familiar with epilepsy, perhaps... You know, we may have friends or relatives ourselves who have seizures and things like that. But actually, it's a bit more complicated as a disease, and and that's what Howard's going to talk about. But tell us first, what is epilepsy? What causes it? And what sort of things happen?
3: Okay, epilepsy is a a, a disorder of the brain, and it's caused when groups of nerve cells essentially fire too fast. And the way in which the seizure shows itself is determined by how many nerve cells... start firing abnormally so if only a relatively small number of nerve cells fire abnormally then the seizure may be rather limited for instance twitching of a hand or movements of a mouth or a face however when the whole cortex the, old out, the whole outer surface of the brain gets involved in this seizure activity then you have what a lot of people would recognize to be a seizure what we call a generalized tonic clonic seizure where somebody loses consciousness collapses to the ground um, they'll they'll go rigid and they shake and the whole thing lasting anything from uh, you know a few minutes to well to longer occasionally needing emergency treatment
2: And what sort of things can actually bring on epilepsy? Are some people born with it or is it caused by something?
3: Uh, Yes, to all of the above and others. Um, Certainly it it can be caused uh, associated with various genetic syndromes that people are born with. It can be caused by brain damage. There's a part of the brain called the temporal lobe, which is particularly vulnerable to not having enough oxygen. Uh, during the birth process. And so people whose birth is unduly complicated can sometimes have seizures. Uh, A kind of epilepsy that many of your listeners may be familiar with um, occurs in, in infants and young children below the age of about five where they have a very high temperature. These are known as febrile convulsions. And these are convulsions. They're not epilepsy. And in general, people who have febrile convulsions don't go on to have epilepsy. And that's another important point, that you can have seizures without having epilepsy, and you can have epilepsy without having very obvious seizures. So it's an increasingly complicated subject.
2: And how do we normally treat epilepsy?
3: The great majority of people can be very well treated with anti epileptic drugs. Approximately 70% of people who develop full-blown epilepsy, which is repeated seizures, having one seizure really isn't epilepsy, but having a tendency to repeated seizures is epilepsy. And about 70% of people with epilepsy will respond well to the first or second anti-epileptic drug that they will be given.
2: How, how do these drugs actually work? It sounds incredibly complicated to give someone a drug that actually affects their brain in this way.
3: Um, It is incredibly complicated. Um, uh, In fact, it's sufficiently complicated that I can't give you a very good answer. I'm not sure that many people can. But basically, there are different things that can excite or calm down or inhibit brain nerve cells. And in general, things that calm down or inhibit nerve cells, particularly by increasing uh, in certain parts of the brain a, a, a transmitter between nerve cells called GABA, will help to reduce... The, the the number of seizures. There's another neurotransmitter called glutamate, which excites nerve cells, and too much glutamate activity causes fits. And so, other gro- groups of medicines that are effective are those that reduce the activity of glutamate. So, basically, increase GABA or decrease glutamate, and so, that will have an effect.
2: So, we you know we see people maybe having fits, and they're they're quite dramatic. But what are the the other things that epilepsy can? To bring on the other the other problems because mm-hmm. obviously for people's families it can be quite distressing mm-hmm.
3: Absolutely. Well, that's a very good question. And what we always say is that epilepsy is more than just fits or seizures. Seizures are a a, a symptom of epilepsy. One of the important ones, and I I am very eager to mention this, is that there is a social aspect to the condition. In the past, people were frightened of other people who had epilepsy. People were afraid that seizures meant you were possessed or that there was something awful happening. Um, And I'm very pleased to have this opportunity to say that's not the case at all. Seizures are simply... Uh, a a, a symptom of a localised disease in the brain that can be adequately treated. Um, And so really what happens is that we need to educate people that that seizures are nothing awful and to try to help people fight the stigma that is sometimes applied to those with epilepsy. So that's that's one kind of treatment, education for social stigma. Another thing that I'm particularly interested in is the relationship between epilepsy and psychiatric symptoms. And although the two might seem to be rather different, uh, first of all, they both involve the same organ, that is the brain. And sometimes what happens is that if you have a discharge in one part of the brain, that can actually generate a range of psychiatric symptoms. These might be to do with depression. You might sometimes... Rarely, but but sometimes quite dramatically get symptoms of what we call psychosis, so seeing things that aren 't there, hearing voices haven 't people felt
1: profoundly religious experiences as a consequence of epilepsy?
3: Well, this is where it gets extremely interesting um, the the brain, as you know, does all sorts of amazing things, pretty much it does everything we are and everything we do, and epilepsy is a manifestation of increased activity in those brain cells, and therefore all the things that we can do, essentially, can be generated by seizures. But because it's an abnormal way of activating these nerve cells, we get things broken up. We don't get the whole pattern of behaviour. So people have had intense religious experiences. There are accounts of, of a feeling of conviction, of an absolutely free-floating certainty. This is right, which just exists by itself which is rather unusual, although in fact it does relate to I suppose if
1: we can home in, Howard, on which bits of the brain are triggering those funny experiences, they paradoxically give us some clues as to what those bits of the brain do, and therefore a better understanding of how the brain works.
3: That's absolutely right, and in principle it should be very straightforward. You map where the epileptic focus, that is the site at which the seizure originates, is, with the behaviour, and you know exactly what's going on. It's not as simple as that for several reasons. First of all, because it turns out that there are several different parts of the brain that can generate individual emotional psychiatric symptoms. And secondly, it's very hard sometimes, particularly if you don't have depth electrodes, wires in the brain recording exactly where the seizure is starting, to be sure exactly where the seizure is starting, because, of course, a nerve cell is a microscopic thing, and we're looking at chunks of brain, you know, millimetres or bigger.
1: Thank you very much. This is Howard Ring, who is from the University of Cambridge, and he works on epilepsy. Now, do you ever get that feeling that there's someone who's standing just behind you, even though there might not be? Well, Olaf Blanke from the Brain Mind Institute at the Ecole Polytechnique in Lausanne in Switzerland thinks he's found a way to provoke that feeling merely by stimulating a particular part of the brain that's called the temporoparietal junction. This is all coming from an investigation of a 22-year-old woman who was originally being checked out for a surgical treatment for her epilepsy doctors had decided to try and remove the part of the brain that wasn't working properly to try and stop it triggering fits in this lady. And when they were doing this, the researchers found that they were also able to trigger something very strange.
0: What we basically had the chance to investigate in this patient is something that many clinicians and probably cognitive neuroscientists would also like to do, namely induce by a very focal stimulation of one specific part of the brain, the temporal junction, a highly complex experience. What we, in short, then could induce was that she had the experience that all of a sudden during the two seconds of stimulation that there was another person in the room and that this person would, was always localized behind her, very specific distance just behind her to her right, and this experience was so convincing that she actually had to turn around and look in order to make sure that there was actually nobody there.
1: So when we get the sensation that, that, that there's someone literally standing behind you making the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, if you like, then we can be reasonably sure from the results you found that it's this part of the brain that's responsible.
0: So basically what this shows is that there is at least one anatomical mechanism that seems to be very strongly involved in the, in, in generating these sensations. And although it's a highly complex phenomenon that you can find in schizophrenic patients, but also in healthy subjects, it seems to be due to disturbed brain mechanisms exactly at this area.
1: Is it significant that it's on the left? Because it, it, does the person see the, see the apparition, if you like, or feel the presence of the apparition mm-hmm. on the contralateral, the opposite side of the body, because you're stimulating the left? And, and if you were to do it on the right, would you get the converse effect?
0: Yes, exactly. That can actually be be suspected because there have been reports before this feeling of a presence is always contralateral on the other side with respect to the side of the brain where where there might be a disturbance, a lesion or or other kind of brain damage. So if you have your left temporal parietal junction involved, it will be on the right side and when you have your right brain involved, it will be on the left side.
1: So what do you think the, the actual role of this piece of the brain is when it's working normally?
0: Actually, we have observed it in the induction of similar illusions as well. To give you an example would be an out-of-body experience. It's the same area that's relevant. There's also um, a double-ganger experience where you have the impression of seeing an image of yourself outside, out of space. So all these experiences somehow seem to be generated by stimulation or interference with this temporal parietal junction.
1: It's really interesting as well because... One of the things which is very striking about a number of psychiatric illnesses, especially schizophrenia, is that mm-hmm. people experience sensations that are obviously coming from within their own brain, but they always say they're coming from
0: outside.
1: So is there any evidence to suggest that, again, this part of the brain might be involved in causing that?
0: Absolutely. So we believe that there is a disturbance of, of so-called self-other distinction. Namely, what, what we could show was that when we change the position of the patient, those changes were echoed in the posture and position of the illusory person. Nevertheless, she never experienced that person as reflecting her own body or being an illusion related to her own body. And this is similar to patients with schizophrenia, for example. So, for example, you ask them to grasp, let's say, a glass of water, and while they perform this action, they could tell you that they have the experience as if somebody else were directing their arm. So what our patient has, not for a certain action, not for a certain body part, is a similar disturbance, um, probably with respect to her entire body.
1: It was Olaf Blanke who's describing how they may have found the part of the brain that's responsible for out-of-body experiences, and that could also help us to track down the causes of psychological disorders like schizophrenia.
2: That is so weird. Anyway, we've got some answers on the teaser. We want to know how heavy is a human brain? Um Betty in Northampton, along the right lines. Helen in Cambridge, not heavy enough. Maybe that's just yours. She's
1: basing it on yours.
2: <laughs> Obviously so. Uh, Johnny, two livers. is uh, not doing badly. And John in Peterborough, your brain's a bit heavy, I'm afraid.
1: I've gotten a quick call from Colin in Ipswich who wants to know what it is that makes your jaw ache when you eat something. Well, the answer is if you eat something like chewing gum and you chew it too hard, sometimes you can overwork the muscles. And- They can ache in the same way as if you did a lot of digging You might make your back or your neck or something ache The other thing is that there's a joint Which is where the mandible, the jawbone, meets the skull And that's called the temporomandibular junction Or temporomandibular joint That can actually end up getting a bit sore in some people And it's called TMJ dysfunction and it's caused by chewing too much. I know someone that went to a burger joint once, I won't say which one, and he got a big, big whatever it was, and opened his mouth wide enough to get it in, and then his mouth locked open, and he kind of couldn't get his mouth <laughs> to shut. And he had to go to a dentist, and they kind of prized it back.
2: I, I worry that's going to happen to me, because I can get my whole fist in my mouth, and I worry ask
1: why. The Naked Scientist podcast, brought to you by thenakedscientist.com. It's the Naked Scientist, Dr Chris and Dr Kat. And if you didn't believe what Kat was saying, I can honestly say check out the website, uh, the webcam, because she really has got her entire fist in her mouth. Unbelievable. Uh, John in Essex says, Home electricity, why should wiring oxidise? Would it depend on how often it gets used? How does this depend on if the wires are insulated or not? Well, hopefully the wires are insulated in your house, John, otherwise it would be a death trap. But the bottom line is, normally the current passing through the wires does not generate enough heat in order to make them react with oxygen, which is what oxidation is, wiring's copper, you have to get copper to quite a high temperature to make it react with oxygen to make copper oxide, so that shouldn't happen unless the wiring actually catches fire. Remind me not to come round to your house. Uh, Right, now, on our show, theme of the brain, very pleased to welcome to the studio this week, Professor Nick Craddock. He's from Cardiff University. Hi Nick. Hi Chris. Thanks for coming in. Now, your research actually looks at a different aspect of brain problems which is uh, a neuropsychiatric condition, reasonably common, bipolar disorder or manic depression. That's right. Tell us a bit about it.
9: Uh, so, bipolar disorder, you, as you say, used to be called manic depression. It's a um, f- severe disturbance of mood in which people at some times have episodes of depression and at other times have episodes of elevated mood um, or mania, where they're in an energized state, um, rush around, think, think very quickly, um, often make uh, judgments that they later regret, perhaps spend a lot of money. And it's quite often um, associated with delusions and hallucinations so perhaps somebody believes that they're a very important person or on a special mission
1: it's quite common isn't it i mean 1%, 1% the, of the
9: population yeah the most the, the, the most severe form affects about 1% of the population but we know that uh, probably several more percent have a, a milder form that's usually just diagnosed as depression but actually is a form of bipolar disorder
1: Now, why is it that people should have this alternation between being very depressed and then getting so high that they're out of control? What's actually
9: going on? We don't know. Um, Clearly, there are um, changes in the systems that regulate mood, which are operating in a different way in people with bipolar illness from normal, so that the stresses and uh, strains of normal life uh, are essentially sending the mood stabilisation system uh, out of control at certain times. Unfortunately, we haven't really pinned down exactly which those systems are, and hence a lot of research is going on at the moment to understand that better so that we can have much more effective treatments.
1: Pretty famous people have, have had it and Abs- got it. We, they say that it's, you know, when people are high, they're so creative that this is what makes them stand out from the crowd and be great writers, poets, people like yeah. Stephen Fry even, very great sense
9: of humour. Unfortunately, that's only true up to a point. So if somebody's mildly high, then they can be very productive and uh, creative. The problem is that when somebody becomes severely ill, uh, they they certainly won't be creative and productive because they'll be um, distractible and able to focus on things, very likely to do completely reckless things, perhaps blowing all their savings within a the day, um, perhaps getting into fights, driving, you know, dangerously, this sort of thing. So in a milder form, yes, it can be associated with creativity, but not in the more severe forms.
1: Does one tend to turn into the other? Do people start off mild and and then slowly lose control? Because I I know some, I have some close colleagues who've been absolutely academically brilliant and have subsequently been diagnosed with this and and have lost control. But in the early days... I've never met people so clever. The only person I've ever seen who could have a conversation on one subject with you whilst typing a grant application yes. with the other hand yeah. on a computer he wasn't yeah. even watching and yeah. it would make perfect sense what was coming yes. out on that screen. That's how that person was yeah. in the early days.
9: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, if, if it's in the milder s- stages of illness, then it is possible that that can actually be quite a productive state, but the... The real problem is that uh, there's a tendency then for the the mood just to go out of control and then it's very problematic for the person and the family and uh, often leads to them losing jobs and uh, s- splitting is up. Is it
1: not the mental illness that has the highest suicide rate attached to it? Because yes. it makes life hell on earth for the people who have it?
9: That's right. So about one in six people with bipolar illness will eventually end their life by suicide.
1: Is it a, a one-way street when you get to that very severe spectrum of the of the problem can you wind it back so you get back to being relatively normal functioning and, and so you have all that energy and you can focus better again or, or once you've got very very bad is it pretty much a life sentence?
9: No I mean an, an episode of mania can be treated uh, effectively with uh, medication and the person can get back to feeling essentially um, having normal mood but it's likely that they'll then need medication to actually keep the mood within normal levels the problem at the moment is our treatments are um, only effective in a proportion of people, and uh, they can have intolerable side effects. So what we're doing is trying to do research to understand better the causes of illness and develop much more effective treatments.
1: Because it has a genetic association, doesn't it? Mania it runs yes. in
9: families. Yes, a very strong genetic association. Um, family and twin studies have, have shown that very clearly that. Um, genes play a major role in influencing risk. Although, do we know which ones? Uh, no, not yet. The, the research is, is going on, and uh, we're, w- w- there are a number of genes that we are uh, you know, working on at the moment that we're confident do play a role, but c- exactly characterising that and pinning down the systems is going to take a little bit more work yet. But I think we can be very optimistic that over the next few years we're going to have a much better understanding and we'll be able to develop much better... Uh, methods of diagnosis and treatment. Thank you very
1: much, Nick Craddock from Cardiff University, who's working on trying to find out the genetic causes of bipolar disorder.
10: And now it's time to go to our question of the week, and we have Sabina. Hello, welcome to this week's question of the week. This week's question was posed by Kevin.
6: Hi, this is Kevin Kinney in Plainfield, Indiana, and I'd like to know what shape black holes are. They're always depicted as though they're flat. Is that correct?
10: Thank you. We've had an email in from Guy Sheffer, who is doing his national service in Israel, and says our podcast keeps him sane. Well, we're glad to hear it. I think the Naked Scientist podcast should be standard issue to all military. He says a black hole's shape is a perfect sphere. Roger Penrose came up with the idea and showed that black holes collapse to a perfect sphere thanks to the gravity pulling all the matter into a single point. He called it the no-hair theorem, meaning that black holes have no hair or any other shape. Guy also adds that this idea was adapted by Stephen Hawking in his thesis where he showed that the universe might be thought of as a black hole. And in the Big Bang, the universe had no hair or distinguished shape. However, he isn't sure about this today. Thank you, Guy. If Stephen Hawking is listening and would like to comment, then please drop me a line to questionoftheweek at thenakedscientist.com. OK, time to call in the professionals. This week's expert is Lord Professor Sir Martin Rees, astronomer royal and president of the Royal Society. Luckily for us, he does his astronoming at the University of Cambridge, so he was able to spare some time for a chat.
11: Black holes are one of the most remarkable predictions of Einstein's theory. He predicted that if an object is very small or very heavy, then the gravity around it becomes so strong that it, as it were, cuts itself off from the rest of space. It's as though the escape velocity is the speed of light, so not even light can escape. We believe, furthermore, that their properties depend on how heavy they are and how fast they're spinning. A black hole that's not spinning would be spherical. It would have a sort of surface around it within which light was trapped. If it's spinning, then it's flattened. So the shape is like a sphere or like an ellipsoid. We can actually test whether this theory is correct, because although we can't see inside a black hole, astronomers have discovered that black holes actually exist in the centers of galaxies. And we can study the motion of stars and gas orbiting outside these holes. And thereby, we probe the shape of the black hole. We can't, of course, directly observe what's inside. If you were to get very close to a black hole, you could fall inside. But having done so, you'd be fated to destruction in the so-called central singularity. What's remarkable, therefore, is that Einstein's theory of gravity tells us about space and time and how they are strongly distorted when gravity is strong and how they produce black holes. And astronomers can actually observe these objects and thereby test Einstein's theory and also discover some of the objects that are responsible for the most energetic phenomena in the universe.
10: Thank you there to Lord Reese. So Guy who emailed in was right about black holes being spherical, but only working under the assumption that they're not moving. As they are spinning, they become elliptoid. All this spinning is making me dizzy, so next week we're back on Earth, finding the answer to Michael's question.
4: OK, hi, my name is Michael Rashdy. I'm calling from Houston, Texas. I'm calling to ask about what dogs are doing when they lift their legs to go to the bathroom. Are they targeting a particular place when they mark? And what are they aiming for? Are they trying to cover up another dog's scent? Or are they trying to just acknowledge it with their own? And do they recognize their own scent? And how do you know?
10: If you know why dogs pee up lampposts, then I'd like to hear from you. Similarly, if you have a question of your own, drop me a line to questionoftheweek at questionoftheweekatthenakedscientist.com. Until next week, it's back to the studio. Thanks, Sabina. So
2: if you know what's upmost in a dog's mind while its leg is up in the air, or if you've got another question for us, let us know by emailing question of the week. That's all one word at thenakedscientist.com. scientist.com.
1: So delicately put,
2: Cathy. Yes. Um, we just have a few more coming in on the teaser. Arthur in Colchester, doing quite well. Joan in Beckles along the right lines, and Jim in Norfolk, very precise, giving his answer in ounces. Shame it's not standard units.
3: Sorting out the sparks from the quarks,
1: the naked scientists.
2: You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Dr Chris and Dr Kat. And now it is time to go back to Ben and Dave to see if they have solved our muesli dilemma and find out what half a pint of rice and a bouncy ball can tell us about why all the nuts and raisins float to the top.
4: Oh, hello again. Welcome back to Kitchen Science. We're still at Parkside Community College. We've got our two pint glasses here, both half full of rice with a bouncy ball buried in the middle. So, Dave, what's next?
5: So, first of all, I'd like Emily to just try shaking her glass up and down and see what happens. I have to shake for quite a long time. Oh.
6: Well, the all kind of comes to the surface a bit, but then it kind of gets buried again.
5: Yeah, that's right. Because you're rotating your arm when you shake it, the far side gets shaken more than the close side. So you're not
4: just shaking the whole thing up and down. You're putting a bit of a tilt in there, a bit of an angle.
5: Yeah, that's right. It's very hard not to because your arm is designed to pivot. So when that happens, the far side is getting shaken more, so all the particles are further apart from each other, then they're less dense. So all of the rice on the side, which is getting shaken a lot, gonna, is going to float. And on the other side, it's not getting shaken as much. It's more dense, so it sinks. So actually, you get a convection current, so stuff's coming up and coming down. So the ball gets sucked upwards and then gets pulled downwards.
4: So should we see now what happens when Matt bangs his glass on the table? OK, then. Keep going, Matt. What's happening? Come on, bouncy ball. Oh, oh, it's appeared. There we go. It's appeared at the top. Now it's the bounce ball staying where it is and not moving. So this time the bouncy ball has come up to the top of the rice, but instead of being pulled back down again down the other side of the glass, it's just staying at the top. What's different this time?
5: Imagine the ball shaking around, all the little small pieces of rice shaking around. If the ball comes up, it's quite easy for a piece of rice to fall in underneath it. But if a piece of rice comes up making a hole, the odds are the ball will still be held up by a load of other pieces of rice and so the ball can't fall down. So the ball can only go upwards, it can't go downwards, so it tends to float up to the surface.
4: So this is the same process that happens in a box of muesli while it's on the back of a van?
5: Yeah, so the big lumps in the muesli tend to float up to the surface. And also if you've ever been to a stony beach, you'll find the larger stones tend to be at the top because they tend to work their way upwards as the small
4: stones fall in between them. Did you expect that to happen? Uh, No, I actually didn't. (laughs) I thought the vans would go down. (laughs) And did you ever expect that, that you could prove why the raisins are on the top using science?
6: Um, Well, not with rice and bouncy balls, to be honest.
4: Okay, fantastic. Well, I do hope that you tried this out at home. That's all from Kitchen Science this week from Parkside Community College. And that's all from Dave Ansell. Goodbye. From Emily and from Matt. Bye. Bye. And goodbye from me.
2: Oh, thanks, Ben. So, bouncy ball is like raisins and rice is like muesli. Hmm, I'm not going round for, be- for a breakfast at breakfast house. some cereal like that. Hmm, yeah, not very nice. Anyway, so that experiment and loads and loads more can be found at the Naked Scientist website, and that's www.thenakedscientist.com slash kitchen science.
1: It is Dr Chris and Dr Cat with the Naked Scientist. And we're joined this week by Nick Craddock, who's from Cardiff University, and Howard Ring from Cambridge University. We've been talking about the science of the brains. So we've got some sort of rapid-fire questions for you guys. Um, I've got one here from Ed Baker. He is from Brighton, Sussex University, and he says, Homer Simpson once said, Every time I learn something new, it pushes some old stuff out of my brain. And I was wondering, I'm a history student from the most examined generation in history, and as I sit here memorising the last 50 years of the European economic community, poor thing, am I in fact simultaneously forgetting potentially more important information such as my sister's birthday or how to play the harmonica. What serious stuff. Or maybe then the extra 90% of my brain I recently found I could use, after all, is, uh, is extra storage space. What do you think, guys?
3: I think that you're perfectly safe, actually. I think that um, there's probably far more capacity in your brain to put stuff in than um, you'll ever use, although recalling it can be difficult. And I think that there's increasing research recently that's been demonstrated that recall is the tricky bit, um, but that there's far more in there than you might ever have thought. So how much do you
1: think I can keep in my head?
3: In bits, I have absolutely <laughs> no idea. But I just think, th- think bits, back to, that's what I feel yeah, like in, yeah. think, think back to when you've, you, know, you go into a, walk into a room, there's a movie on, you see the first 15 seconds of it as you walk into the room, and you think, oh, I know that, I saw that five years ago. Imagine you've got lots and lots of, of snippets that you can just identify, a bit of music, imagine how much is stored there, think how many hard discs that would require.
1: There's a question from Colin, um, sorry, Chris, who has phoned in to say, why do certain foods trigger panic attacks and possibly depression?
9: Well, that's a... (laughs) Right. I mean, the obvious one that occurs to me is coffee, because coffee potentiates adrenaline, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Well, right, yeah. I mean, (laughs) I suppose the answer is we're not absolutely sure on that, but certainly um, things that influence... Neurotransmitter systems that can alter mood or create anxiety feelings. Um, some of those ov- obviously can also be influenced by mo- um, foods. You mentioned Because col- if you eat food that's deficient in the amino acid
1: tryptophan, that gets turned into the brain into 5-hydroxytryptamine, which is serotonin, the brain's feel-good chemical. So if you have that, then that can make yeah. you depressed. And if you have food that doesn't have that, that in, people have done yeah. experiments on that. No,
9: right? that's true, yeah. And th- 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 there are certainly situations where you can show by depriving someone of that, you can acutely induce uh, low mood. And certainly... Um, one of the reasons people like to binge on chocolate is it, 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 that can actually boost the levels of serotonin. Go cat, you're off the hook. And, yeah. and that, that can help. But, I, you know, I mean, undoubtedly foods can play an important role, but I think one shouldn't overinterpret interpret uh, the influence of foods on that. Thanks, Nick. So, Kat, tell us,
1: how big is the normal person's brain? Not your enormous, right, enormous excuse for a brain, brain, but the normal brain. How much well, does it weigh? That's we, our teaser this week. We do
2: have a winner on our teaser this week. Now, the human brain weighs roughly 1.3 kilos, and it ranges from about 1 to 1. 1.5 kilos. It has an average volume of 1.6 litres. Now, the male brain is slightly larger than the female brain. Well, thank you. There thank is you. no evidence that men are any cleverer than women. And our winner this week is Jim from Norfolk, who said it sort of ranges from... He, he gave his answer in ounces, 44 to 49 ounces which is 1.2 to 1.4 kilos. So um, you're our winner this week and you win a copy of The Rough Guide to the Brain.
1: And interestingly, uh, Neanderthals, who were a sort of ancestor of ours around a bit before we were and died out about 28,000 years ago on Earth. They had bigger brains than we did. Well, that goes to show. Well, that's pretty much it for this week. Thank you very much for listening. And thank you also to Nick Craddock from Cardiff and Howard Ring from Cambridge for leading us through the science of mental illnesses and epilepsy. Next time, we're going to be looking at the fuels of the future with a new way to make hydrogen on demand for cars and a new chemical made from sugar that packs the same punch as petrol. Sorry, gasoline. All right, US people. That's next week's Naked Scientists, and if you'd like to be part of it, do drop me a line, chris at nakedscientists.com. Now don't forget that nominations are open for the Podcast Awards, that's at podcastawards.com. Please drop by there and nominate your favourite science show, hopefully that's us. And also do give the Nature Podcast a listen, that's at nature.com forward slash podcast. We made that too, and it's stuff full of current scientific discussion and discovery. Finally, I'd like to say a massive thank you to our wonderful production team, who are Ben, Azzy, Dave and Sabina. See you next week.
10: One in two women wear the wrong foundation. Are you? Time
1: to upgrade. Il Maquillage is the boldest new brand in beauty. With 20,000 five-star reviews, their Woke Up Like This Foundation is a bestseller for a reason. Available in 50 shades of flawless natural coverage, all cruelty-free. And with Try Before You Buy, it's risk-free. Take the Power Match quiz to find your perfect shade and try it free for 14 days. Go to ilmakiage.com slash quiz. That's ilmakiag
11: dot slash quiz you. Mm-hmm.